titled the sermon Essentials for Church Growth. I was, uh, I was very hesitant to call it that because in church world, a lot of times church growth has connotations of worldliness and preoccupation with numbers and you're, you're just about tickling people's ears. And uh, because there, there was a movement called the church growth movement has received a lot of criticism. But the more that I wrestled with the text, the more I felt like that's really what, what Paul is talking about. There's, there's sort of this flow in the book of Colossians. In chapter 1, uh, we talked about Paul, Paul kind of casts a vision for the Colossian church. He lists his prayer priorities. He says, these are the things that I want to see God do in you. He talks about them uh, increasing and, uh, and growing in the knowledge of God and bearing fruit in every way. And then he talks about, the, he addresses the, the false teaching that's taken place in the Colossian church. And so he talks about the, how Christ is supreme in all things. And then he talks about how Jesus is sufficient for the Christian life, how we don't need anything else. And then in chapter 3, he turns to relationships within the church and even uh, inside the household. And so then we, we come to chapter 4, and Paul turns sort of outward. And he, he turns to the mission of the church. And what are the things that the church needs to give attention to, uh, to, to really grow and increase, and to accomplish the mission that it's received uh, from the Lord. And so we didn't, we didn't realize when we decided to preach through Colossians that this, that this text would be so apt for <clears throat> going into the outreach this week. But it really is, and I'm really excited to be teaching through it. The big idea tonight in Colossians 4, 2 through 8 is going to be that strategic prayer, strategic proclamation, and strategic partnerships are essential to the growth of the local church. And so when I say that they are essential, I mean that church growth really won't happen if you don't give attention to these things. And we need to orient our lives around these disciplines, a discipline of strategic prayer, a discipline of strategic proclamation, sharing the gospel strategically, and uh, strategic partnerships. And we're going to talk about two levels of partnerships, cultivating partnerships within the local church and cultivating partnerships between local churches. We need both kinds of partnerships um, to really reach our world for Christ. And with that, let's read the text. If you would, uh, if you're able to stand, would you stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word? Paul writes in chapter 4, beginning in verse 2, he says, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been imprisoned that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. As to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord, will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, so that, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number, they will inform you about the whole situation here. 
Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends to you his greetings, and also Barnabas' cousin, Mark, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And also Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, meaning Jews, and they have proved to be an encouragement to me. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings, and also Demas. Greet the brethren who are at Laodicea, and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. Say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. In verses 2 and 3, we see prayer is essential to the growth of the church. The church will not grow if we don't pray. And this is, this, this is mysterious to me, and I struggle with this because I have such a high view of God's sovereignty that I know that God can do whatever God wants to do whenever he wants to do it. And yet, it's, so, it's also so clear in Scripture that God delights in responding to the prayers of his saints. And he, he delights in advancing the kingdom of God through his saints. And the, and the same is true when we talk about proclamation here in a few minutes, that God could save people however he wants to save people. The, the Bible says that he's sovereign over salvation, and yet he delights to save people through the preaching of the gospel. And he, he demands the preaching of the gospel in order for people to respond to it and to be saved. And uh, John Piper, in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, um, which, by the way, is, is, I think, a book that every Christian should read. He connects these two ideas of, of prayer and proclamation in a way. He says that the work of mission is the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the effectiveness of the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ hinges on prayer. God delights to save people through the preaching of the gospel, and he saves people through the preaching of the gospel when the saints pray for salvations. We need to have that thought at the front of our minds as we move into this weekend, to be praying strategically and to be praying fervently for the salvation of the lost this weekend. So the church will not grow if we don't pray. It's a big statement, but I think the Bible teaches it. So he says, and there are really, there's three verbal ideas that, that Paul has in uh, this first verse, verse 2, he says, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with thanksgiving. And so when we talk about strategic prayer, each of these verbal ideas helps us, kind of gives us a lens to, to flesh out what we mean by praying strategically. First, when he says, devote yourselves to prayer, uh, this word that's translated devote yourselves, it's used um, several times, in, about, about ten times in the New Testament. And when it's used with prayer, it does have this idea of devoting yourself. Some translations say pray continually. Uh, but in Mark 3, 9 and 10, we get a, a, it shows up, and I think it gives us 
a glimpse into what the Apostle Paul has in mind. Uh, in Mark 3, 19, it says, Jesus told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowd so that they would not crowd him. For he had healed many with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. And so Jesus knew that there, the crowds were coming. He knew that eventually he was going to get pressed. And so before the pressure is on, he tells his disciples, a boat needs to stand ready. So there's this idea in the, the verb of uh, devoting yourselves that is about proactivity. Rather than being reactive, it's about being proactive. Devoting yourself to prayer means not waiting until the pressure is on to pray, but it means praying proactively, looking for opportunities to pray. The, the other next verbal idea, keeping alert in it. The word keeping alert means to be watchful, or it could be translated be wakeful. When Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, he takes his 12 disciples and he says, watch and pray. He goes away and he prays and he comes back and they're sleeping. And he wakes up Peter and he says, Peter, could you not, and my translation says watch, but you could also say, Peter, could you not stay awake for one hour? It's this idea of wakefulness, watchfulness. It's used in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 5 through 8. Paul says, but you, brethren, you're not in darkness, but the day that the day would overtake you like a thief. And he's talking about the return of Jesus. He says the return of Jesus is going to come like a thief. He says, you're not in the darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert. There's the word. And sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation." I think, I think Paul's opposed to drunkenness, but I really think he's using drunkenness as a metaphor here. In the same way that he's using sleep as a metaphor, he's not, he's not talking about literal drunkenness. He's talking about having this mindset where you're impaired and groggy and passive and unresponsive. He said, you're not of the darkness. That's what characterizes the darkness as sleep and drunkenness, this groggy, passive attitude. But you're of the light, so be alert, be wakeful. Be looking for opportunities. Be prepared. So these, these ideas together, this standing ready in prayer, being watchful in prayer, um, they, they point us toward a, a church that is alert and engaged. We're active. We're not passive. So we're not, uh, not passively waiting for things to develop, but we're actively pursuing God's will. We're actively seeking uh, God's kingdom come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then finally, Paul says to pray uh, with thanksgiving. I think, and, and very simply, you know, praying with thanksgiving expresses a dependence on God, that I'm totally, totally in need of him to act, that we, we confess that we don't have the ability to save people, that we don't have the ability to change things, and that we're completely dependent on God. Uh, to, to meet us if, if, we're, if the church is going to grow. And as we confess our dependence on God, it cultivates a humility in us. So thanksgiving is a discipline. If you're ungrateful, you can stop, and you can start being thankful, and it will cultivate humility in your life. 
so giving thanks is a discipline. I think one of the best strategic prayers, one of the best examples in Scripture is Matthew 9. Jesus had been preaching and healing people, and there was all this crowd that had been following Jesus. And he looks out on the people, and it says that in seeing the, seeing the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And he told his disciples, Behold, look on the fields, for they are white for harvest. Therefore, beseech, pray, or ask the Lord of the harvest that he would send out workers into the harvest. Right? So Jesus, he looks on these people with eyes of faith, and what he sees is opportunity. And his response is strategic prayer. If you see fields white for harvest, if you see opportunity, your response is to press in and to pray and ask God to, to, to act in this situation. And, of course, Jesus does in chapters, chapter 10. He gives his disciples instructions and sends them out into the harvest. Says, guys, get busy. We'll be praying for more to come, but you better get to work. Um, so, so strategic prayer usually leads to effective action on our part. Every Christian should be praying strategically for the growth of the local church. It's not, it's not an optional thing for prayer warriors. Paul, Paul's not writing Colossians to church leaders or super saints. He is writing to the average, ordinary Christian in the pew, and strategic prayer is for you, and it's for me. Amen. And the same is going to be true of the, of the rest of the strategic proclamation and partnerships. And so, so that you can pray strategically, I want to give you some prayer points. I hope you can see these. For our CCI Garland family, I think some great prayer points would be uh, a, a unity among our church family, that we would be unified and that we would have common, common purpose, common partnership. Secondly, pursuit of holiness and Christ-like maturity among the church family, that we'd be pursuing that together and that we'd be serious about it. And third, more labors for the harvest. I can look around at the neighborhood around us and I see such opportunities for children's ministry, youth ministry. I, don't, I think as many children's workers as the Lord would send us, we could, we could put to work uh, in this neighborhood. If you can imagine sidewalk Sunday schools, if you can imagine VBSs in the summer, if you can imagine block parties, uh, adopt-a-blocks, the possibilities are, are wide open for us here. Third, effective evangelism and response from the community. So when we do events like this outreach this weekend where, where we're looking for God to, to, in, to come and that people would respond to the preaching of the gospel. And then that we would be prepared for God to answer our prayers. Sometimes I think we, we pray for God to, to bless us with people getting saved and then they get saved and we're not ready for success. But we so pray that we would be effective in follow up and discipleship. That when when we go out and knock on doors and we invite people and they show up, that we would be engaging and friendly and we would we would genuinely love people. And so yeah, so being effective in follow up and discipleship, those are those are five starters for praying for our church. Okay, next in verses three through six is strategic proclamation. Proclamation is essential. To the growth of the church. Uh, the Apostle Paul said that, he said, pray, obviously devote yourselves to prayer. He says, pray at the same time for us as well that God will open up a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I've been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. 
Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. So proclamation is essential to the growth of the church. In the same way that the church will not grow unless we pray, the church will not grow if we don't tell people about Jesus. There's two kinds of growth in church growth. There's, there's transfer growth and there's conversion growth. And there, anytime a new church is planted, there's always some transfer growth. There are people who are part of a church that move, transplant, and become part of, part of the new church. The, the type of growth that we see in the New Testament and the type of growth that we're really pursuing is conversion growth. We want to see people who do not know Jesus or maybe people who do know Jesus but aren't connected with a local church. We want them to get connected and to be discipled and to grow up into Christ's likeness with us. So Paul says strategic proclamation consists really of two parts, being ready to speak. And I think this idea of being ready to speak, it's like being poised, being like a runner who is at the starting block down in the, or, a, or a football player down in the three-point position, ready, ready to go as soon as, as soon as the call is given. Be poised. Be ready. Paul, Paul it's really funny if you, if you read this passage because Paul's in jail, right? And he says, pray for me that an opportunity will give me, me to preach the gospel. Like, if I could just get out of jail, I'd be running through these streets preaching the gospel. And that's what got him put in jail, right? So he's, he's just wanting an opportunity to preach the gospel again. So to have that kind of zeal and that kind of readiness that if I just get an open door, I'm going to speak the gospel. And then the second part is uh, being careful how we speak. He says you need to take care in how you speak. 1 Peter 3.15, I think, echoes what Paul's idea here. He says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. So he says, always be ready. Wait, you're waiting for that door to open. You're ready to speak when you have an opportunity, yet... You give that response with gentleness and reverence. There's a concern there for readiness and also for being careful with how you speak, being tactful, being gentle, being loving toward people in the way that we speak. But one of the big takeaways for, for 1 Peter 3.15 and for the text we're looking at in Colossians 4 is that every Christian has an obligation to know what they believe and why and to be able to communicate that to another person. Again, 1 Peter is not written to pastors or leaders, or super saints. It's written to ordinary Joe in, in the pew, right? So every Christian has, has this obligation to know what they believe and why. You don't have to be a seminary professor, but you do have to be able to articulate your faith. Um, and if you, if you don't have that ability, you have an obligation to apply yourself to attaining that ability. You know, And I don't mean this to be like, I don't hope this doesn't sound like a guilt trip, but I'm just, I want to, Proclaim the whole counsel of God. And that, you know, this is the cost of discipleship. If you're following Christ, then you've got to walk like Christ. And you've got to, you've got to understand what it is you believe about Christ. And be able to share that with other people. And so how do we do this? If I'm, if I'm not equipped, how is it that I get equipped? I think back in Colossians 3, the Apostle Paul gave us a clue. He said, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your heart. So he's saying in the context of the Christian community, 
we're supposed to be walking together. We're supposed to be hearing the Word of God. We're supposed to be meditating the Word of God, taking it in and letting it pervade who we are down to our bones so that it becomes a part of who we are and so it just flows out when we speak to people. When the door opens, when we have an opportunity, we're ready to speak because it's a part of who we are. It's not something. It's not some canned presentation that we memorized last night. It's something that we've soaked in and something that's real and alive. So strategic proclamation. Be poised. Be ready. Be prepared. Know what it is that you have to share. Know, know the gospel. And be personable. And by personable, I just mean be tactful. Be willing to listen as much as you talk. Be willing to, to relate with the person where they are and meet them where they are because I promise you that Jesus Christ can meet their need, whatever it is. But we have to be so immersed in the Word of God that we know how it is that Christ meets their need. And finally, uh, strategic partnerships. And, of course, this is in verses 7 through 18. I, I admit that this point is more implicit than explicit here in, here in this text. But nonetheless, I think that Paul would agree that strategic partnerships are essential to the growth of the church. The church will not grow if we don't walk in unity. We have to have partnerships inside the church, and we have to have partnerships between local churches. Partnerships within the local church, what I mean by that is prayer partners, ministry partners, partners for accountability, partners for discipleship. When I, when I was a new believer, I got saved in uh, January of 2003. And in October of 2003, the director of the Sunday school, uh, the church where I was going, he came up to me and he said, Mike, I see that you are growing and I see that God is working in your life and I want to help you. And I, I was pretty rough around the edges. And so I think he was, he was trying to save me from some hurt too. Uh, so he, he, he started meeting with me uh, one morning a week and we met for the next five years. And I still think that that is one of the most powerful, formative relationships in my life. And then there are other people, prayer partners, ministry partners, accountability partners, discipleship partners. Verna, I'm glad you're here. Another example I give is, is Verna. A couple of or it was last year, we went out for her birthday. It just occurred to me, and I shared this with her, that like I, we, Terry and I have a lot of Christian friends, but there are not a lot of people that we really we call partners in ministry where, where our heartbeat is the same, where we have the same, the same passion for the same kinds of ministry. And I don't know, it's hard to explain, but it's, it's, we, we connect, we understand each other. When I, when I want to talk about making disciples in an urban context, I go talk to Verna at the, at the center. Like she's just, we're just on the same page when it comes to ministry. And that's just a relationship that God has blessed us with. So my question is, do you have those kinds of people in your life? Do you have people that are willing to pour their lives into you? Do you have people that you're willing to pour your life into? Do you have people that you just resonate with them on a, on a level of ministry and that you can get together? And it seems like every time you get together, you're just having a deep, Christ-centered conversation because that's just where you go together. You need those relationships if you don't. Um, and, I, and that would be a personal prayer point that I would put at the top of your, of your prayer list is that, God, would you bring someone into my life who will be that for me, and will you allow me to be that for somebody? That's how the church grows. The church doesn't grow through structures and programs. The church grows, grows through face-to-face 
interaction. One person prayerfully speaking the word of God into the life of another person. That's how transformation happens. That's how change happens. And that's, that's the culture that we want. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12, a well-known verse on this point. It says, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if, for if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. You are never better off alone. And I think that that is a satanic deception Satan uses to deceive so many people to think that I would be better off if, if I didn't have to deal with these people. That you are never, you are never better off alone. You're always, we're always better together. And Paul points to Epaphras as a uh, example of this in chapter in uh, chapter four, verses twelve and thirteen. He says he he reminds the Colossians. If you remember back in chapter one, we said Epaphras is the one who started the church at Colossae. He probably traveled to Ephesus while Paul was preaching there, and then he went back to Colossae and he preached the gospel to him, started the church, probably started the churches in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Paul says, Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, so that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. And that he, Epaphras probably started all these churches. But Paul says that, He's always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. Can you, can you see that picture? So Paul's in jail and Epaphras comes to visit him and he stays for a while and they're talking and they're having fellowship and they get together and they pray on a regular basis. And Paul's impressed by how every time Epaphras prays, he's crying out on behalf of the church at Colossae and the church at Hierapolis and the church at Laodicea. And how he's so burdened for these people. So far away, right? He's not, they, they would never know if he didn't pray for them. And so Paul's impressed at how this, this guy has such a heart for these people. And it expresses itself in his prayer life. Love finds expression in our lives, if it's real love. Testifies to his deep concern for those who are. And so we need those partnerships within the local church. That's how the church grows. And lastly, I just want to mention strategic partnerships between local churches. Um, I know that City Church has, has benefited so greatly from partnerships with other churches. I, I think I can say with confidence that I don't think we'd be sitting here if it hadn't been for the help that Gateway Church has given to CCI Dallas over the years. I mean, their, their investment in CCI Dallas has, has, has allowed us to, to save up for a church plant, and, and so it's, it's huge. Right now, we're as a small church plant, we're kind of on the receiving end of a whole lot of benefit, but I hope that one day we'll be able to be a church that is a giver. But listen to this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Listen to this example that uh, Paul gives of the churches in Macedonia. He says, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. So here's the situation. The church at Jerusalem was being persecuted. They were, because they were being persecuted, they were experiencing economic hardship. 
And so the Apostle Paul starts going, as he goes around all the churches, he takes up offerings, financial offerings, to take back to the saints in, in Jerusalem to, to help them along. And so he gets to Macedonia, and he says in verse 2, he says, uh, I test, uh, We wish to make known to you that in great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. It's a lot of big words. What he's saying is their affliction was, was severe. He says their joy was great. Their joy was abundant. Their poverty was deep. They were broke, but they were happy. And because of their joy, their joy in the Lord, he said they had a wealth of generosity. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. So this is what Paul is saying. He said, I came to Macedonia, and normally I take up a collection, but these people were so broke, and they were experiencing the same persecution that the saints in Judea were experiencing. I didn't want to ask them for any money, but they begged me to, for the opportunity to give. He said, I, I was embarrassed to ask because they were afflicted. Their poverty was deep, but their joy in the Lord was so great that they overflowed with generosity and begged, can we contribute something? And, and the word that's translated participation, the urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints, that's koinonia, which is, we also translate fellowship. That's, that's real Christian fellowship. Church growth, if we are going to grow as a church, so and when I talk about church growth, I don't just mean numerical church growth in the pews, but I mean growing together as a church, being strengthened in our faith, maturing into the image of Christ, and growing up numerically, and multiplying. If we're going to enter, in the book of Acts, probably about four times, Luke says, the word of the Lord continued to increase, and to be multiplied. Well, that's obviously a metaphor, right? But I've been thinking, well, what does that mean? Well, it means that the, peop- the number of people who believed the word of the Lord increased, and the number of people that were sharing the word of the Lord was multiplying. And the church was gr- increasing, being strengthened in their faith, and it was multiplying. And so he uses the word of the Lord sort of as a, as a euphemism for those who are embracing the gospel and those who are being impacted and, and multiplying the gospel. Anyway, church growth depends on orienting our lives around these disciplines. Strategic prayer, strategic proclamation, strategic partnerships. We've got to prioritize our lives to reflect the importance of these, right? Because you may say, well, I did prioritize them there at the bottom. <laughs> you know, but, uh, they've got to be prioritized at the top because Apostle Paul says that these are essential. These are, these are, without these, growth won't happen. Yeah, so it's not enough to agree that they're important. We have to adjust our priorities to reflect their importance. And so as we're, as we're approaching the outreach, I do want to remind you just of our, uh, the vision for this outreach, that we want everybody to hear the gospel. So if you want to get a fresh start as, as a proclaimer of the gospel, this is your chance. Amen. Right? You're going to, have a, going to have a parking lot full of people, and you can just walk through and share the gospel with as many people as you can. And walk through the parking lot and share, and everybody, we want everybody to receive prayer. And, and remember, we, we, we want to be poised, and we want to be prepared, 
and we want to be personable in the way that we share it. We don't want to cram anything down anybody's throat, but we do want to hold out the gospel alive to people that are seeking it. You, you, this may be you. You may be in a place where you feel like you need to prioritize these things. You realize you need to get equipped to share the gospel. Um, you need to make prayer priority. But you're like, my priority is to wake up and get dressed and get to work and get home. And that's, that's just where I am. And that's, that's like, I feel like I'm doing all I can do just to, just to manage those, those basic things. I invite you just to come down and receive prayer. And just because I may not have the answers of what, how you can reprioritize your life, but I promise you.